the scripture reading today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 7 through 32. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 841. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, then, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name has, had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, Philip, his, his brother Ph Philip's wife because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodotus' daughter came and danced, she, was, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to this girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he, vowed, and he vowed to her, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, we naturally like this idea of upgrades. We like trading in those things that are old or worn out or just kind of 
I don't know, deteriorating, falling apart for something that is newer, something that is better, something that will last longer. I mean, this is not foolish for us. This is just good business sense, right? But what if giving up what you cannot keep causes pain? What happens if, if what you might have to let go of causes you hardship or suffering or maybe even your own life? What if it results in rejection or loss or imprisonment? What if giving up what you cannot keep comes to you with an axe at your neck or a sword in your side? What if you're hung on a cross upside down or you're burned at the stake? Or like Jim Elliot, who penned these very words, you were speared to death and thrown in a river in the middle of a jungle in Ecuador. Though we like the idea of upgrades, we want to determine the terms of our trade. Right? I'm willing to, to gain what I cannot lose just as long as I can, I can decide what it is I give up and what it is I keep. I, I, I want to have control over that. I'm willing to give some of my time. I'm willing to give some of my energy or some of my money or some of my resources. If it means that I can gain Christ, I'm all for it. But don't ask me to give up everything. Please. Don't ask me to give up my comfort or my entertainment or my ease or my security or my health. Please don't ask me to give up my life. In American Christianity, we, we've tried to create a Savior that is safe and not suffering. Where we interpret if anyone should come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me to mean just wear a crucifix around your neck or put one up in your house and then live and do as you please but that's not what it means to follow Christ in this passage mark is telling us of the cost of discipleship Mission and martyrdom go hand in hand. Death and discipleship are inseparable. We saw last week that the call to discipleship is a call to mission. It is inseparable. And we must go in the character of the mission that Jesus would have us go in, and we embrace willingly the consequences of that mission, whatever they may be. Because the Gospel... Gospel's worthy of our lives. Following Christ will lead to the cross, but not just in repentance and faith, but also in rejection and in hatred and in hardship, and for some, even death. The call to discipleship is a call to die. So as we look at this passage today, we are going to look at three men and we're going to learn from their lives. And what we're going to see in this passage, we see three things. We see the death, death in mission, we see death of mission, and we see death for mission. We see death in mission in this account of John the Baptist. In all of Mark, there are only two times... That, G, that Mark ever takes his focus off of Jesus. 
Now there are other people that kind of come and share the spotlight with Jesus. Like the hemorrhaging woman, or like Jairus, or like the, the Gadarene demoniac that we've looked at before. But there's only two times ever where, where Mark intentionally, he takes that spotlight off of Jesus for just moments and fixes it on someone else. And the only two times he ever does that, both occurrences are about John the Baptist. So he must be somebody important. We have to think about who was this man? Who was John the Baptist? We see here from this text that he was a holy and righteous man, right? Who, who was imprisoned and then later executed because he was willing to boldly tell the ruler of the land, listen, the way you're living is not consistent with Scripture. In verse 18 we see that he said to Herod that it is not lawful for you to have your brother's life. I mean, here we we learn that John is a brave and godly man who was willing to tell this ruler, listen, what, what we profess to believe about God has direct bearing upon our lives. And your life is not squaring up with who you say that you are. You say that you're a Jew. You say that you are one of the people of God. Then why is your life inconsistent with that? And he's willing to do that even if it costs him imprisonment, even if it costs him his life. The first time we see John the Baptist in the book of Mark was back in chapter 1. I mean, there we learned that, that he was this strangely dressed prophet who had this weird diet that was out there in the desert. He's out there in the wilderness along the, the Jordan River and he's calling people everywhere to repent of their sin and to await this coming glory one, this, this mighty one who, whose sandals he's not worthy to stoop down and untie. This man will come and deliver and you guys need to prepare yourself. And so he's out there and he's preaching and those who hear his message and receive it, they respond with the act of baptism. They are baptized. John is the Baptist, not because he's SBC, but because that's what he did, right? And so here he is, he's out in the wilderness beforehand. He's telling others of this mighty one, this this great and glorious God. He is preparing the way of the Lord. And you see it kind of crescendo, it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then who's the next person that appears on the scene? It's Jesus. John baptizes Jesus. And then when John is arrested, because of what he said here to Herod, this mighty one, Jesus, begins his ministry. Now that's basically all that that Mark tells us about John the Baptist, minus one big thing that I'll get to in a minute. Uh, But we can learn a lot more about John the Baptist if we look at a couple of other Gospels. If we look at the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of John, John focuses on what John the Baptist is telling us. That John the Baptist is there to bear witness to Christ. And he, more than any other Gospel writer, focuses on what John the Baptist actually said about Jesus. Just a few of the things that he said. He said, look, there's Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, listen, Jesus, He is the Son of God. In chapter 3, he says, listen, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, but he who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He, Jesus, who who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not have life, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a powerful testimony that John gives of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. If you have Him, if you obey Him, if you follow Him, you have eternal life. But if you reject Him, God's wrath remains on you. Luke tells us even more about John, at least in his early years. If you look at the first three chapters of of the book of Luke, much of it is devoted to John and his beginnings. And it starts with this account of an angel appearing to John's father, Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is an old man, and his mother, Elizabeth, is a very old woman. They're beyond the age of giving birth, of being able to carry a child. And yet, this angel appears to Zechariah and says to him, Listen. You're going to have a son, and his name will be John. He will be a great and mighty man. I will set him apart. He will be my forerunner to tell. that He will prepare the people for the way of the coming of the Lord. And so what you see here is that, that God is promising, even before John's birth, that he is going to be his man, his prophet, to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. You get this other account in there of like of when Elizabeth is pregnant and Mary, Jesus' mother, is pregnant and they come together and, and there's like this big party in womb that happens there. It's just kind of crazy. Like John is filled with the Spirit even before he's born and so as the unborn Jesus approaches the unborn John, John leaps in his mother's womb. He's excited even before he's born, he's proclaiming Christ. And so what you see here is that Luke tells us that, that, the, that, that John was set apart by God before his birth to testify in the power of the Holy Spirit about Jesus. Now you would think that that's the beginning of John's story, but it's not. You have to go even farther back than that to learn more about John. To learn about John, you have to go to the Old Testament. See, each of the four Gospel writers quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, and they apply it directly to John. Mark goes even farther. Mark applies both Malachi 3.1 and Exodus 23.20 to John, saying, listen, this guy, John the Baptist, he's being told about in the second book of the Bible. If you want to learn about John the Baptist, you have to go to the second book of the Bible. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years before he was ever born, before he ever existed on this earth, God predicted that he would be here, that he would come. That he would be Jesus' forerunner, who would prepare the way of the Lord so that God's people would know the way of God's salvation. And that is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is amazing. So what you see is that God's that John was included in God's unfolding plan of redemption. From the beginning, John was there. He was prophesied to be a part of God's mission, God's unfolding plan to save his people. He is the one set apart from the beginning, filled with the Holy Spirit 
to proclaim the coming of Christ. And I, I don't mean to belabor who John is, but I don't want us to miss how significant it is. When you think about God's mission, when you think about an, an ordinary man that God raises up, to be his missionary, to be his man, to be his prophet, you ought to think of John the Baptist. Right? So it's no wonder that Jesus says, listen, of, of, of men born of a woman, no one has arisen that is greater than John. John has the privilege, the only prophet of God that is able to see God's only unfolding plan of redemption, to see all of God's promises unfold right before his eyes. He is the only one that can point directly to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, this is the fulfillment of all God's promises. So when you think about a missionary sent by God to fulfill God's mission, you ought to think about John the Baptist. There's no one greater that had the greatest opportunity that this man had to look at the face of Jesus and to recognize that he was God's fulfillment of all his promises. And so you think about this. Okay, God's man, right? This forerunner, this one foretold back from Exodus 23:20 till now. This is a great and glorious man. Jesus even says so. So what is this man's fate? What is this man's consequence? What does God have for this man? Surely glory and honor and greatness and riches and prosperity and blessings abundantly, right? Right? No. Not at all. At least in terms of this earthly life. Though he was clearly spiritually blessed in this earth, he experienced very little. He was set apart even before he was born, and then he himself made a vow that he would not uh, partake of the, some of the pleasures of this world. He was not allowed to drink wine or strong drink. He didn't even get to have a haircut, right? Uh, he had this really amazing wardrobe that, that prophets sometimes wore that, that maybe that's, that's chic today. Maybe you could pull off, you know, clothing camel's hair with this belt around your waist. But back then, that was like kind of taboo. He didn't dine on all the luxuries, you know, and delicacies of this world. No, he ate locusts and honey. The cicadas are coming this way. You guys want to try those? I don't, I don't think you could fix those and make them good. I'm sorry. It's just bad. No matter how much honey you have, they're going to be gross. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, he lived out in the desert, more than likely in a tent. You know, he didn't have this grand place where he lived. He was out there, and by the grace of God, people were coming out to him. But he was out there, struggling toiling, eating what the land could provide, just basically forsaking all the pleasures of this world because he was set apart by God for something greater. And what did that gain him? What did he get? Imprisonment. For doing what God told him to do. For being faithful to his mission. And because he stirred up enough animosity against him, it cost him his head. People didn't like what he had to say. He was executed because Herod's wife hated him and because Herod feared man and loved his sin 
more than he feared and loved God. Now we look at this and we're shocked. We should be shocked. We didn't expect this, right? We didn't expect this of God's man, God's prophet. This doesn't seem fair to us. I mean, here he is. John the Baptist is killed for being faithful to God's mission. I mean, how could this be? Why would God let this happen to the man that he set apart? And we learn that John didn't expect it to be this way either. You think John wasn't afraid in prison? You think that John didn't wonder if this would cost him his life and would he be willing to give that up? I mean, at one point, John is clearly doubting. He sends his disciples to Jesus and he asks, Listen, are you the one that is to come or should we expect another? He's basically saying, Did I point to the wrong guy when I said, Behold the Lamb of God? Did I mean the guy to the left of you? I I don't know. What's going on here? This is not what I expected. Jesus, tell me. this. I I, I believe you are who you are, but, but what about me? And so Jesus tells his disciples, go back to John and you tell him this. And he quotes from Isaiah 61. And he says, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to him. All stuff that you had clearly seen Jesus doing in the gospel accounts already. But what he left out was to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who were bound. He left it out. He said, he's basically saying, listen, John, you're right where God wants you to be. You're going to stay there. Jesus did this because the promises weren't simply to be fulfilled physically in the here and now, but spiritually. Setting free those who are captive to their sins so that they might be restored to God. So, John, you are going to stay right there. The forerunner, set apart by God to faithfully prepare the way of the Lord, you are going to die in prison. Now we look at that, and that seems very hopeless. But we have to remember something God can be faithful to all His promises even when His missionary sits in prison awaiting to die because the true rewards from these promises are spiritual and eternal, not physical. God is still faithful to John in that John was given sight. He's no longer blind. John was healed and cleansed and given ears to hear. John received the promise of the resurrection. John had the gospel preached to him and had the joyous responsibility to preach it to others. And though John sits in prison, John's soul is not bound to hell because of what Christ has done. That God will save him. When we embrace these promises... For what they were intended to be, there is great hope. There is great comfort. There is great assurance in God's faithfulness to His Word so that we can stand secure even if we're in prison, even if we're being rejected, even if we face hardship or persecution or suffering or there is an axe at our necks. Because God is faithful. When we catch that, we're willing to submit our lives in whatever way God chooses because death is not the end. And God will fulfill all His promises. 
God's mission will not fail. His missionaries will not give their lives in vain. The amazing thing about John the Baptist and his story is that John's mission didn't end at his death. John's mission actually goes on. It goes on because in verse 29 we see that when his disciples heard of his death, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. But if you read Acts chapter 19, you learn that some 30 years later in Ephesus, of all places, they find some of John's disciples still being faithful to John's teaching. John's mission was still going on. We learned last time that this was, again, a sandwich technique that, that Mark was using to, to predict, to foretell, to make promises that, that listen, God, Jesus and his disciples, they are going to face the same fate as John. And yet the mission still goes on. So his death was actually a ministry and a continuation of the ministry and mission that we see in the disciples, that we see in Jesus. And John's mission continues anytime we read his story and we preach his word. Our lives are being changed by John's faithfulness to his mission. His ministry goes on and on and on and on as we hear and we repeat the testimony of Jesus that there is no greater man than John. This is why I said death in mission and not death by mission or death from mission. Right? <clears throat> you see, you can kill the missionary, but you can't kill the mission. His message will go on because his message is God's message, and God's mission will not fail. Their blessing, and throughout, this, throughout history, stories will be told of faithful men who gave their lives in participation with God's mission. And so His blessing on earth continues on even now as we retell these stories of, of men's faithfulness to their mission. Men like Jim Elliot, men like Paul, or like Peter, or like James, and men like John the Baptist, whose mission carries on after their death. And so though John died in mission, his death is not the death of mission. For that, for the death of mission, we must look at the second man in the story, Herod. Mission doesn't die when missionaries like John the Baptist die in mission. Mission dies when men become like Herod. It happens when we hear the gospel, but we fail to take up the call. When we live for ourselves rather than for God. Now, you may be sitting there and wondering, would God call me to die? Would my life end up like John's? That I might sit in a prison somewhere, that, that I might be asked to die, and, and you're afraid because you don't know whether or not you'd be willing to do it. Well, you're in a good place. That's fine. I don't think that anybody has the answers ahead of time. Yes, this is my lot. This is where I'm going, and I'm happy to do so. But God gives strength in that moment. And as much as we fear that our lives might end up like, like John's, there's a much greater fear that we need to have from this text. And it's not that we would be like John, but that we would be like Herod. I mean, let's face it, very few of us will be asked to give our lives to be executed for the gospel. But every one of us 
are, temptation, are tempted daily, repeatedly, to love our sin more than we love God. We have much more in common with Herod than we do with John. Your greatest danger is not dying from an axe at your neck. It's by loving your sin. Every one of us is here. We're like Herod. We're just like him. I mean, take away his position, take away his name, and you have us. Okay? You don't think so? I mean, if you're thinking, Chet, you're crazy. I'm not a murderer like Herod. Was it just because you you haven't followed your sin enough or you don't have the position or the title? You, You just don't know. You can't say that. I mean, if you hate a brother, have you ever hated anyone in your life? then you too could be a murderer. But even apart from that, it doesn't matter. I mean, you you might be saying to yourself, I'm a good person. I'm here at church. I experience sorrow for my sin. I I, I try to live a good life. I I can't be like Herod. I, I can't possibly be like Herod. Well, I want to point out some things from this text that might cause you to reconsider. Some seemingly good things that we see from Herod that makes him seem a lot more real, that makes him seem and appear a lot more like you and me. Look at verse. Look again at verses 14 through 16. Okay, what we see there is that word is spread of Jesus and people are beginning to speculate as to who he is. Some people think that he's John the Baptist raised. Some people think that he's Elijah. Some think that he's a prophet like one of old. And when, when Herod hears this, When he hears this, in verse 16 it says, he recognizes and he says, John, whom I beheaded, was raised. Now, his conclusion is wrong, but what I want you to see here is that Herod admits his responsibility for John's death. He says, I beheaded John. This is an admission of guilt, an admission of responsibility, an admission of sin. He fully recognizes that he sinned and he's afraid that John has come back from the grave to come and get him. So he has a fear. In verse 17, we're told that that Herod had seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his wife. Now, in part, Herod did a good thing. Here's this guy, he's saying some really damaging things about my wife, so i got to do something, right? And so I'm going to go out there, I'm going to seize him, and I'm going to capture him. And, and though the only problem with it is that everything that John was saying was absolutely true. But the fact that he wanted to protect his wife was a good thing, right? You should want to protect your wife. In verse 20, We're told that Herod doesn't go along with his wife's request to put John to death because Herod feared John. It says he knew that John was a righteous and holy man, and so he kept him safe. That was a good thing. But even more than that, if you keep reading in verse 20, you see that not only did he fear John and keep him safe, but when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. He gladly listened to John preach to him. Even when John was saying to him, listen, it is not lawful for you to have your wife. He was at a loss. He marveled. And he received that message with joy. And in verse 26... Herod was exceedingly sorrowful because of the promise that he had made to his stepdaughter. 
But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. I mean, here you see a man trying to honor his word. As wrong as his conclusion was. So admission of sin, fear of God, desire to protect his wife, honoring and protecting the righteous and the holy, a sense of being in wonder and loss and awe, gladly listening to the preaching of the word, exceeding sorrow for sin, and a desire to keep your word. That could sound like anybody and everybody in this room. And in fact, it ought to reflect everybody in this room. Those are seemingly good things that we see from Herod. We see that Herod's motives aren't all, weren't all bad. But the problem for Herod, which is one that we so often share, is that Herod loved his sin. And though he feared the consequences of his actions, and he admitted his own guilt, Herod never gave up his sin. And it led to John's death. There's a number of Herod's sins that we see in this passage as well. First, Herod loved power. He loved his position. He was in a position of authority, and he saw John as dangerous to that position. John could potentially lead others in a revolt against him, and so he had him imprisoned. Herod was proud. He didn't want anyone to question him or his authority. Herod was a lazy spiritual leader of his family. I mean, let's face it, his wife comes to him, she's got this evil request, and rather than trying to correct her, change her mind, he just goes along with it. He's like, whatever, I'm not going to deal with this. Herod was covetous. He desired his brother's wife, and so he took her. And he committed adultery in his heart, and then in reality, when he dismissed his wife, or maybe even divorced his current wife, the wife of his youth, in order to take on his sister-in-law. Herod married an evil woman, an unbeliever. She, uh, Herodias is put up there with, with women like Jezebel and Delilah as, as women who led their, their men into greater sin. Herod was also sexually deviant. He wanted to go against God's design for marriage. Herodias was not only his sister-in-law, she was his half-niece. And so he wanted what he could not have. And he took it. Herod loved riches. He would rather indulge himself on all the world has to offer than to do the right thing and to lead well. He selfishly abused his position for his own good rather than seeking it to use it for the benefit of the people. And so he was an evil elder. He was a poor shepherd. Herod feared man. In verse 21 and 26, he was more concerned about saving face in front of his nobles and his military commanders and and the leading men of Galilee than he was about doing right by John. Herod willfully placed himself in compromising situations. This birthday banquet that Herod put on was, was, I mean, only men were invited. It was a stag party. And what you see there is there was... Drinking, there was heavy indulging, and they had dancing girls. I mean, this was a wild, get-down kind of party. This was no good. I mean, you knew that it was trouble. And and probably the reason why Herod made such a lofty promise to his daughter-in-law was because he was drunk. Herod was full of sexual lust. I mean, here his wife puts her dingy, man-pleasing teenage daughter into a compromising position, which, by the way, she would also be Herod's niece. And so she comes in, and she's 
dancing what is clearly an erotic, seductive dance. And, and it pleases the men so much that they're all digging in their pockets trying to get their dollars out. And so probably what happened is Herod ran out of dollars and so he said, you know what, I'll promise you up to half my kingdom. Making vows that he never should have made. And though he was exceedingly sorrowful for what he had promised this girl and her scheming mother, he failed to love John as he should, and he coldly, without compassion, gave orders for the executioner to bring back John's head. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of similarities between me and Herod on that list, too. If you don't, you're not looking hard enough. You see, we are a lot like Herod, both in the seemingly good things, but also in the bad. And the question is, will you, like Herod, love your sin more than you love God? At the end of the day, despite his admission of his sin, and despite his enjoyment of John's preaching, and despite all his exceeding sorrow, Herod loved his sin more. And the more and more he loved his sin, And the more and more and more he indulged in his sin, the more and more and more he hardened his heart towards the things of God. To the point at which, when Jesus is brought before him, ready to be condemned, Herod has no sensitivity. He has no fear. He has no wonder. He has no no gladness towards the things of God. He has no sorrow, no guilt. He doesn't admit his sin. He looks at Jesus. He looks face to face with the Son of God, and he only wants to be entertained. His heart is hardened towards the things of God to the point where he he can't even recognize the Son of God standing right in front of him. His conscience was seared. His heart became hard. And friends, we need to recognize something. That loving your sin is will always result in loving Jesus less, not more. You cannot think that you will ever get to the place where you love Jesus more if you continue to indulge in your sin. It will always lead to hardening. It will always lead to turning away. It will always lead to turning your back on the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To walk by the Spirit, first you must have the Spirit, having repented of your sins and living by faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But second, you also have to know the will of the Spirit in order to walk in it. And the only way you can do that is through His Word and through prayer and through the help of the church. And to walk by the Spirit, you must submit your will to His. And if God's heart is a missionary heart, Guess what you'll be doing? Mission doesn't die because the missionary dies. Mission dies when we love our sin and when we walk in the flesh rather than the spirit. Mission dies when we are like Herod. That brings us to the third man in this account. In John, we see the death of, we see death in mission. In Herod, death of mission. But in Jesus, we see death for mission. Now, I had Jason come up here and read 
all basically all of six. It seemed like it, you know, from verse seven all the way through 32, because I wanted us to be reminded that this account of John the Baptist and his death was sandwiched in between Jesus sending out the apostles and their returning. Right. We've been over this before, but I, I just wanted to make it clear. Last week, I told you that Mark does this to warn God's people of what will happen, that they will face the same type of rejection that they could potentially die just like like John. But even in this sobering warning that their lives would be like John's, I think that Mark also offers hope here. Let's read again verses 30 through 32. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. What we see here is the disciples returned excited. They're eager to tell Jesus all that they've said, all that has happened, all that was done. But they're really there. They're coming back because they want to be with Jesus. Right? And if we remember back to chapter 3, verse 14, when they were initially appointed, the very first purpose of Jesus appointing these twelve was so that they might be with Him. So that they can have fellowship with Him. So that He would be their teacher. So that He would be their shepherd. And like any good shepherd, Jesus gives them rest and renewal. They come to Him for their sustenance. They come to Him for their energy and their enthusiasm to be renewed. So that their spirits might be encouraged. So that they might be uplifted by Jesus. He's teaching them that He is their portion. The one who can nourish their weary souls. James Edward rightly says that the life of discipleship is not only mission for Jesus, it's mission with Jesus. When we as followers of Christ participate in God's mission, we go with Jesus in fellowship with Him. Now, Mark's account of John's death was not just a warning to the twelve, and not just a warning to Jesus' disciples. It's also a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. He's, you see, John is not just a forerunner preparing the way of the Lord in what he proclaimed, but also in how he lived. When he came back in chapter 1, we see him proclaiming Jesus. He's telling the people of who Jesus is. And in his death, he's telling us what Jesus came to do, why he came. And in both together, he's showing us what it means to follow him. See, John was bound and executed alone at the hands of the ruler of the land to foreshadow that Jesus would be bound and executed alone at the hands of the rulers of the land. His tragedy points towards Christ's tragedy. Now, I want you to see this. I want you to be careful here because this contains a promise. If you put these two sections together, verses 14 through 29 and verses 30 through 32, there is another truth that is foreshadowed here, and Mark doesn't want us to miss it. Mark wants us to understand. Listen, Jesus' death that is foretold in 14 through 29, and Jesus giving nourishment, being, being the rest for his disciples in verses 30 and 32, they go together. 
And you need to see this. You need to see how they fit. Jesus died alone like John so that when his disciples are in similar situations, when they are rejected, when they are facing persecutions and sufferings and are in prison and are about to die, Jesus is with them. The same rest, the same renewal, the same rejuvenation that Jesus offered His disciples on their return is the same spiritual nourishment that He promises to all His disciples who find themselves in hard situations like Him. Jesus died alone on the cross and rose again so that those who participate in the mission of God will never be alone. Jesus is with them. He has promised His Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be in them. His death for sin is the very purpose of their mission. What they are to go and proclaim. Jesus died for mission. And is this not the promise that He gave in His command for mission? I mean, think about it. The Great Commission in, in, in Mark, or, sorry, Matthew 28, 18-20, He says, All authority has been given to Me on heaven and on earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, to make disciples of those who don't know Me, who are sinners, who are in abject rebellion against God, and, and tell them about Me, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And lo, do not miss this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, I died forsaken so that the Johns of the world would never be alone. This is great comfort. This is great hope. I died so that sinners and rebels, not just the Johns of the world, but also the Herods, might not live empty, miserable, lonely lives, but so that they might turn from themselves and be with me where I am. And if you get this, it doesn't matter whether or not you are suffering in chains like John or you are miserable in the indulgence of your sin like Herod. There is hope because Jesus is your hope. There is a promise. There is rest. There is satisfaction for your weary souls. Jesus died in mission alone so that you never will be. And He promises that He will be with you Always. Jesus' death for mission means that you no longer have to be the death of mission, but can give you hope even if God should call you to die in mission. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You so much for this wonderful promise that Jesus is always with us. God, forgive us for failing to see it. Forgive us for, for turning blind eyes and thinking that it's somehow about us and that, that Your Gospel only goes forward as we are faithful to it all alone, all by ourselves. That we bear the sufferings, that we bear the rejection, that we bear the hardship by ourselves. 
God, forgive us for failing to recognize that Jesus died for this very purpose. To free us from our sins so that we can, we can turn from Herod's to John's, but that, so that we can never be alone. We're never alone in that. May that give us hope and encouragement as we go out trying to be faithful to your mission. That it, it doesn't depend on our efforts, but it in every way depends upon the completed work of Christ. Christ died so that we might be saved from our sin. And Christ died so that He would always be with us to be our strength, to be our encouragement, to be that ever-present power through the Holy Spirit so that we might continue to walk in His mission, in His ministry, which is yours. Thank you that we are no longer in darkness. For those of us who are still struggling with loving our sin, God, I pray that we would recognize its inability to satisfy and that we are literally walking around in darkness and blindness and we're getting tired of it. It is, it is miserable. I am not happy here. God, I pray that as we turn to Christ, we don't look at Him merely as the entrance into a, a Christian life where it's now just between me and my own effort to, to get myself to You, but we would recognize that You are always, 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 always with us. God, help us to love Christ more than we love ourselves. Help us to recognize who He is why He came, and what it means to follow Him. And may we have hope in knowing that He's here. It's in His name we pray. Amen.